Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gurr, why don't you bring in our two esteemed guests? Yeah, Jeffrey Sachs with us, university professor at Columbia University, author of Building the New American Economy, Smart, Fair, and Sustainable. Julia Coronado joining us as well in our Bloomberg 1130 Studios, founder and president of Macro Policy Perspective. Julia, let me start with uh, with you as we await the jobs report here at 830. Uh Will the Fed ever declare that we've reached full employment? Is that something that's just a, a specter looming in the in the background? What 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 is the Fed waiting for? Well, they're not waiting. The I mean, they're yeah. they're raising rates. They have basically said on the on the employment side of the mandate, they're there. There may be a little bit more slack, uh, is their assessment, but um, they have kind of declared victory on the employment mandate. Now it's the inflation side of their mandate that's still falling short. But they are raising rates, and they are going to put in a balance sheet reduction uh, plan. It seems later this year. So they are moving forward with uh, policy tightening ever so slowly, but surely. How tenuous a position are they in right now, Look, looking at the jobs market where it is, and uh, as you say, worried about the other other half of the mandate? Well, I think the job situation is probably the least of their worries uh, in, in a lot of senses. I mean, assessing the outlook with so much uncertainty and the risks to it is is a very difficult job. And again, the, the inflation side, things have been going in the wrong direction lately, both uh, headline inflation, commodity prices falling, uh, core inflation giving up a good quarter point of progress, wage growth lagging behind, inflation expectations – uh, really sort of getting anchored at a lower level. So uh, it really looks like they'll struggle. They've emphasized the symmetry of their inflation target lately, but uh, they can't even really get to two. Uh, so I think that's where the worries lie for them. Jeffrey Sachs will dive past the, the headline into the, uh, the greater detail of this jobs report this morning. Look at manufacturing. This administration, others have talked about uh, manufacturing in, in the U.S. We were talking about innovation in manufacturing a few moments ago. Where is that going to come from? Where is the, the, the impulse for innovation, uh, the, the, the uh, training to do new manufacturing going to come from? Is that going to be something pioneered by companies going forward, or is that something that is in the, the provenance of, of the government? First of all, innovation comes from a combination of uh, academia, government, and business, uh, and that's the, the rich model, we call it the innovation system, and that was the vision uh, of Vannevar Bush uh, right after World War II, that we would build a science and tech-based economy uh, through the interactions of uh, government, academia, uh, and, and business, and it works great. And our manufacturing sector is incredibly dynamic uh, technologically, but the technologies uh, of today and the future are uh, eliminating jobs, not creating jobs uh, on the whole. And this is a quite real phenomenon. There's nothing special about it or paradoxical about it. <clears throat> we are in a, a job-saving technology mode because 
the machines are getting smarter and smarter and able to replace yeah. what people do. So manufacturing is healthy. Jobs is another matter. That's why the wages are going down for more and more of the labor force. And the winners of this are the equity owners because the whole well, uh, national income has shifted towards okay. capital. Should we wax historical here, Julia? I mean, we should, Let's I, wax. I think we should wax <laughs> historical. Let's talk about young Sachs. 35 years ago. All right, let's try to, try to remember. <laughs> the, yeah. the employment real wage relationship. Yep. You were thinking about this when you started out. This is after Kotlikoff and Lemur and that. This is the employment real wage relationship. Are we a gilded age now like we were a gilded age back then? It's interesting. I have been thinking about uh, how technological change or oil price shocks uh, affects the demand for labor and writing about that for, oh my word, almost four decades now. <laughs> uh, but the, the fact is that the whole uh, machine age, which is not just now but goes back to the 19th century, has been yeah. replacing lower-skilled work. And that's why, to keep ahead, uh, we have what uh, Larry Katz and Claudia Golden of Harvard yeah. famously called the race between technology and education. Now technology is winning that race, meaning that more and more of our population uh, is uh, not able to keep up with the machines. This doesn't mean that as a whole we're losing from technological innovation. The winners are Larry Page and Sergey Brin and uh, Tim Cook and, uh, and uh, Bill Gates and, uh, we have, and Jeff Bezos. We have more money at the top than ever. We have a larger economy than ever. We have a $20 trillion oh. economy. But – the labor share of national okay. income mm -hmm. has been falling. You, you got to get off an airplane, a polluting, destroying hydrocarbon airplane. There get off go. the airplane and come back. Jeff Sachs, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, really, really helpful. They thank you, folks, for your many comments on uh, Mr. Sachs's appearance. We welcome on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television Worldwide from Janice Anderson. William Gross joins us, as he always does, after the good analysis of uh, Jim Glassman. It's good to speak uh, to Bill Gross. Bill, I haven't done the three-month moving average of jobs, but we're not getting the jobs growth we got 10 years ago. Is that a surprise? No, I don't think so. Uh, certainly not at the levels of unemployment that we're at now, uh, not only in terms of U3, but... Uh, U6, I think as an economy matures, and, and this recovery is eight, nine, close to 10 years in the making, uh, you know, job growth comes down. So I, I think it's to be expected. It's a weaker number than the market expected today, but nonetheless, you know, I think it, it reflects via the work week, via wages that mm -hmm. uh, we're on, on steam for a 2.2% uh, type of real economy going forward, which may not right. be what the market's expecting, but what I think is going to happen. Does the tepidness of this, the vectors, the three-month, the six-month, the 12-month job uh, formation, and also wage growth, does it adjust what Chair Yellen will confront June 14th? I don't think it changes much. I, I do agree that uh, the chair... You know, believes in job growth more than anything else, and to the extent that it's lower than the market expected, uh, perhaps. But she, she's going in June. I, I think the Fed 
Tom is uh, for Klimt to cite an old Saturday Night Live skit uh, phrase. You know, it, it wants inflation higher in the real economy, but not necessarily in the financial markets. And so we have um, you know, not dreaded fear, but, uh, you know, concern about uh, financial bubbles in some areas, commercial real estate and, and so on. And, and to be fair, other central banks are really pouring on the coal in terms of the global economy. The ECB and the BOJ, by the way, Tom, uh, now have balance sheets larger than the Fed at four and a half trillion plus each of them. And so there's a lot of money coming into this global economy. And for the Fed to, uh, you know, join in and stop raising uh, the, the Fed funds level or even, you know, not address uh, what we have in terms of their balance sheet later in the year, I think uh, would be a mistake. A little coffee talk here with uh, Bill Gross of Janice Henderson here on Jobs Day. Uh, Bill, let me ask you, uh, what happens when the Fed begins unwinding this balance sheet? What's that going to mean for, for term premium? Well, it depends on how fast, right, David? Um, and we're talking about not only treasuries but mortgages because they're in that pot too. You know, at the moment, uh, the, the forecasts are, the private forecasts are for like 10 to $15 billion a month, which makes an inroad in, in terms of, uh, you know, reducing the balance sheet, but certainly at a very slow pace. I think ultimately, though, to answer your question, that the term premium for five to 10 to 30-year treasuries, which are a significant part of that balance sheet, you know, basically have to, ha has to increase uh, the term premium as, uh, you know, not only forecast, but uh, put into evidence by uh, several district uh, Fed, uh, <coughs> Fed Reserve banks has suggested that 75 basis points lower, you know, was the net net of uh, the $4 trillion addition that we've seen you know, prior to the, the past few years. And so you would have to expect the term premium to go yeah. up. Does it go back up by 75 basis points? I don't think yeah. so, but certainly higher over the short term. David Gurr, pick up the question here, but we got to do a data check for radio and television right now because this is really remarkable. 2.18% on the 10-year yield. The 30-year bond is 17 basis points in from 3%. That is a huge deal. And over on the book, Kareem, get over here right now on Bloomberg <laughs> Television. For those of you in radio, this is a wow statistic. Bill Gross is minting money this morning. The 210 spread is broken under 90 basis points. Gross may have to cancel the interview. David, jump in with Bill while I, I continue to look at the spread market. Bill, let me ask you, you're, you're a global investor. We have seen changes to uh, geopolitics here over the last 24 hours and certainly over the last week plus. How does a, a different role for the U.S. in the world change your outlook and your positioning? See, I think it's significant. I don't think the market thinks it's significant because the stocks blew by that uh, news, you know, <clears throat> yesterday. But you know, let's look at it this way: in terms of the Paris Accord and uh, you know our, our absence, at least in, in terms of uh, f uh, philosophical absence, you know, it, uh, it's destructive from my uh, point of view for equities because equities are long-term cash flow dependent. And what we're talking about here in terms of global warming uh, going higher is the increase. And long-term liabilities and so ultimately stocks have to be affected by the potential for the expense the liability you know to contain global warming uh, right. if it uh, goes much higher okay here's the heart of the matter kareem don't come over here again kareem come on i make the rules this chart was to kaplan of dallas this is the vector of inflation and bill gross has been dead on that we're not right that, that core pc inflation is rolling over bill with this jobs report and with the two tens 
spread under 90 beeps, with yields coming in, weaker dollar, would you say even more so now that inflation is just not part of the debate and that gives Janet Yellen cover to lengthen out her, her path to a normal yield policy? Well, I, 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 I'm not sure I understood the, uh, the, the, the two parts of that question, but I, I think what it does for Janet Yellen is allow her to, um, you know, to, con- to, to keep the Fed funds level, uh, the neutral, the long-term yeah. neutral Fed funds rate at a lower level than she would have uh, previously. You know, there is a, a contentious debate among uh, Fed officials as to what R-star, which is really the real long-term, uh, you know, Fed funds rate, what it is. And uh, at the moment, it appears that it's less than zero. And I, I think Janet Yellen will keep on keeping on and uh, as long as financial right. markets in some areas of the economy do not show uh, bubblish uh, types right. of uh, characteristics. How are you adjusting your portfolio, Janice Henderson? I mean, we have seen a Bill Gross economy over the last two months, I would suggest, where it's been a little bit disappointing from the enthusiasm. How have you adjusted your portfolio? Well, let's look at it this way from all asset classes, Tom. So we know volatility is low. We know about the VIX. It's uh, less than 10, uh, yeah. which is historically low. Uh, we're not so, uh, you know, uh, necessarily informed on uh, bond volatility, but it's historically low as well. And, and so when you have volatility in the two major markets at low levels, you know, you certainly don't want to sell that volatility. And the way investors basically assume risk and sell volatility is to buy stocks, to buy duration, to buy high-yield bonds at uh, relatively low spreads. In other words, they move into markets that have low risk premiums when they should move into markets that have high risk premiums. So this is definitely a market, not just with stocks, but with bonds and other asset classes where an investor has to be careful because of the low volatility that's embedded into the market. David Gurren, Tom Keenan, New York, joining us from Janice Henderson, uh, William Gross. Bill Gross, wonderful to have you with us as always. What I noticed today, Bill, that is so different is you get a reaction from the report And we've had now one and two impulses 20 minutes down the line, 24 minutes down the line of lower yields, weaker um, dollar. When does the 210 spread begin to get Bill Gross's attention? If we had a Trump surge, a Trump fade, we went through the curve flatness of November 8th to an ever flatter yield curve. And with a vengeance, we see more this morning. When does Bill Gross look at the twos ten and say, this has my attention? Well, Tommy, it's had my attention actually for a long time. Uh, you, you know, I, I think most uh, portfolio managers and economists have it wrong. They, they talk about the the flatness and the the move of the 210 to a you know basically a flat level which creates a, a recession and it always has historically in the past but to me you know the 210 has been flattening for at least 2 to 3 years it started you know close mm-hmm. to 200 basis points and now where it is as you cite and so that's an indication of tightening now why uh, do we not need to go back to zero to create uh, recessionary types of environments i think because the us economy and the global economy is much more highly levered and to the extent that the us dollar is the global currency to the extent that you flat flat 
flat, you know, it, it creates more and more risk in terms of a global economic slowdown, uh, not necessarily a recession. So it's got my attention, has had my attention, and I think investors yeah. should continue to watch it and not just look for zero as opposed to where we are now at uh, 80 to 90 basis points. Bill, you and I should have a moment of silence for all those taking the CFA exam <laughs> this Saturday. <laughs> I guess we can do that. And as, as you know, Bill Gross, level one convexity is about acceleration. How worried are you of tantrums of convexity, of acceleration in the glide paths for Janet Yellen? Should, can she believe in stability or does she have to worry about real upset? I don't think uh, we have to worry about convexity and acceleration from the Yellen uh, economy and the Yellen Fed. I think we have to worry about it from the standpoint of the ECB, not necessarily the BOJ. At some point, the ECB, and they've uh, suggested already that they're going to cut back in terms of their purchases, but ultimately, remember the Fed, uh, you know, eliminated uh, quantitative easing about two years ago, and yeah, the taper tantrum was before that, but in anticipation of it. And so I think, uh, simply because Bunds and uh, because um, you, you know, um, JGBs are calling the tune for the global market that we should look to the ECB as the potential leader for any type of tantrum going forward. At the moment, Draghi has basically calmed markets and said, hey, inflation's not high enough. But when we come to that point where the ECB starts to cut back, then, uh, you know, bond markets globally may be at risk. Bill, I want to get you to react to what uh, James Gorman said to Bloomberg a couple of days ago. We had an exclusive with him in Beijing. Uh, the CEO of Morgan Stanley said the dirty little secret is the U.S. economy is doing just fine. Uh, secret's out. Do you agree with him? Well, no, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think it comes down to productivity. Uh, and as we know, over the past few years, actually over the past five years, productivity basically is uh, close to flatlined. And so that's the ultimate indicator of, of how a U.S. economy is doing. We know that labor force growth, uh, today's report uh, included, you know, is, is moving at a 0.25% to 0.5% rate going forward. And so the balance, if we're going to go to a 2% economic growth or higher, has to come from productivity. Now, what are the reasons why productivity is flatlined and why might it go higher? You know, perhaps it could go higher simply because there's a lag between technology and the ultimate real economy. But, uh, you know, there are negatives, too. Robert Gordon from Northwestern cites uh, low-hanging yeah. fruit and all of it being picked. You know, there's demographics, there's high debt levels, there's uh, deglobalization, all of which suggest, you know, lower productivity going forward. And one last point, Tom, you know, the productivity of finance, uh, which has been inherent in the economy for the past 20 or 30 years with lower refi rates and mortgages and so on, you know, basically is gone. And so uh, productivity is the key, and we're not seeing it. And so I don't think the U.S. economy is doing fine. We saw, we saw manufacturing tick down for the first time in a while in this report today. Again, I'm just looking through the, 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 the layers of it here as the, as the morning wears on. What does that say to you, again, putting into that sort of global context? We were talking about globalization in the last, in the last block. Well, I think uh, I'm not sure what's influenced that. We know about Ford and we know about the auto companies and the cutbacks in terms of their labor. I don't know whether that's influenced this uh, recent report. But, you know, manufacturing depends, uh, and we'll give Trump a little bit of credit here. Manufacturing depends on a, a lower dollar, and to the extent that we've had that for the last three or four months, maybe, you know, there's hope for manufacturing going forward. But uh, at the level that the yeah. dollar was four, five, six months ago, you know, the U.S. manufacturing was not at a competitive level. 
I mean, Bill, within this, in, in, in the, the number of minutes that we've got uh, left, I want to talk about the to-do list for investors. I assume in the battle of yields moving around and prices, right now we got price up, yield down, so I guess you're making money today. But at Janice Henderson, what is the methodology of Bill Gross to be safe and capture yield? What are you actually doing day to day? Okay, first of all, Tom, you have to accept the fact that returns and yields are lower and that, uh, you know, your investors are going to be slightly disappointed almost no matter what. But secondly, what am I doing? Um, you know, basically avoiding high uh, risk premium markets. And, and to be frank, uh, those are equities. Those are long-term high-yield bonds. You know, those are anything with uh, long-term cash flows that may be affected by, you know, ultimately slower growth going forward. What is a substitute in the meantime? You know, we, we heard about Chuck Prince and uh, dancing uh, on the floor and, yeah. until the music stops. Well, to a certain extent, investors are in the same thing. They say, what do I do with my money? Well, what do they do with their money? I think if you're going to invest in high-yield bonds, you invest, you know, very short term. There are some ETFs, HYG, J&K, uh, some other alternatives, which, you know, provide 4 to 5% returns with a 3 to 4-year maturity level. I think those are okay. We're buying some of those. There's a preferred ETF called PFF, the biggest preferred PFF, uh, the biggest ETF, and it yields about 5.5%. Yeah. Um, are these uh, low-risk uh, types of investments? They're lower risk than, uh, than long-term bonds. They're stocks and uh, technology yeah. high flyers. And so, you know, that's what we're doing to produce a 3 to 4 to right. 5% return. Now, you sound like our good colleague uh, Christopher Whalen, who we speak to, who likes those preferreds from time to time. I believe that's called capturing a coupon. Bill Gross, I want to know the levels where you begin to pay attention. The yen is on a tear this morning. Stronger yen, 110.73. We mentioned the two's 10 step spread flattening out. Oil down to 47. We had a 46 handle on West Texas Intermediate. Do you sense a tip? point here in the correlation of markets that signal disinflation or can you really say it's a steady American economy and Janet Yellen will act as predicted? Yeah, I think it's a steady uh, American economy and that uh, the market is expecting and uh, we'll see, you know, a hike in June and perhaps one later in the year, but the Fed is going to stay very, very low, and so that uh, supports markets to some extent. I would say uh, you didn't mention gold, but gold is up today. You know, gold's a reflection of uh, a weaker dollar, and it's a reflection of lower real interest rates, mm -hmm. and we see both of those today. And so, you know, some markets will be affected by the lower yields and by the weaker dollar. You know, to, to the extent that we continue to see that trend, then uh, those would be markets where you'd want to invest. Bill Gross, thank you as always Appreciate for your time. You. He's with Janice Henderson uh, as well. Of course, the Janice Henderson Unconstrained uh, Fund. Just great to get his perspective. Mr. Gross, uh, he's not taking the CFA exam this weekend, <laughs> just so you know. You're, you're just for fun, he's going to do it. We, we did it and somehow. Been there, done that. Survived. He went home and he relicked his whole stamp collection. There you go, yeah. He was so, <laughs> so charred after level three exam. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of A M L dot com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. 
Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. Okay, so let's start with the problem. What's your analysis of the problem? Why has the stock price not reflected a fairly successful operation? Yeah, I think that GM is strong in very many areas of its business, and it's made a number of really good strategic moves that positions itself very well for the future. There's lots of areas in, in operating an automobile company, from product design to sales to manufacturing, customer support, so on and so forth. But one area where GM is weak is in its capital structure. It's weak in finance, and it has a balance sheet which is fundamentally too conservative for, um, for the value that's being created in the operations to be unlocked. The company has a market cap of just about $50 billion. They have $20 billion in cash. They have an undrawn revolver of another $13 or $14 billion. They have a few billion dollars more in cash sitting offshore in places like China that isn't even counted. And with so much of the value locked in cash preserving for the downside, it, lead, it leaves an inefficient capital structure for the company, and shareholders have been rewarded, therefore, with the lowest P.E. multiple in the entire S&P 500. It trades at a huge discount even to four. Ford. Were to have Ford's P.E. multiple, the stock would be 30, 40 percent higher. So I think that something needs to be done to unlock the value that's at GM. So if that's the diagnosis, why hasn't management addressed it? I mean, Mary Barra certainly is concerned about her stock price. She said it to me. She said it to other people. She knows there's a problem. Yes. She has a team around her. Why haven't they addressed it? I think there's caring about a stock price and caring about a stock price. It's kind of like I could lose that last five pounds. But am I, do I really care enough to change my diet and change my exercise to do that? And whereas I would rather have five pounds less, I'm not really willing to do that. GM, similarly, would prefer a higher stock price, they're, but they're not really willing to do what it takes to make that happen. Is it also possible that they are scarred from the experience of going bankrupt and then having to come back into the marketplace? And so they're saying, we really need some money for a rainy day. And might they be right about that? Sure. The company has said that they're forever grateful to the United States for bailing themselves out and, and preserving the company through the last, uh, the last recession. And the company is capitalized to make sure that that absolutely positively never happens again. So I think that there's several ways to get at that particular thing. One is, is you could decide that you're fighting the last war and you could change your balance sheet uh, to make it more conducive to the current business, to the current uh, cost structure of the company, which is structurally improved, which would require you know, much less... Uh, liquidity and cash. Or alternatively, you could do something that's kind of clever. And we have kind of a clever proposal that we've made, which allows the company to keep all of its cash, to keep all of its rainy day money, to have its preservation for any future downturn that comes the exact same way that they have it right now, but would unlock the value at GM. So let's take us through that, exactly that clever, as you call it, cl clever plan. It involves two classes of stock, essentially. Sure. What are those two classes? Essentially what we're saying is, is you have the stock right now, and as the owners of GM, you get dividends and you get all the other values of ownership. 
And if you separated out the value of the dividends from all the other values, you would unlock you know, 30 to 50% increase in the value of the stock. So there's a, to oversimplify, there's a dividend share and there's a growth share. Correct. Uh, and each shareholder would get one of each? One of each. And you should have the same dividend that you're getting now, and you'd have the same growth you're getting right now. But if you wanted to, you could trade one of them or the other. And the result is, is people who are more interested in dividends, you'd have new buyers that would come in for those dividend shares. And alternatively, if you're not interested in the dividend, but you're interested in the growth of the company, you would buy, you would buy the other shares. Now, if the market were working properly, the value of those two shares should equal the value of the one share right now. And yet, you and your proposal say that you think there's a fair amount of upside there. Why is that? Where's the market imperfection? It has to do with choice. I think of it as, as an ice cream stand that sells just vanilla chocolate swirl. There's some people who like vanilla chocolate swirl, and we'll call those the GM shareholders. But if chocolate is the dividend and vanilla is the rest of the operation, imagine if you sold chocolate, vanilla, or swirl in any combination that you want, that ice cream stand would attract more customers. So there's people who would be interested in the income feature of the dividend. They would buy they would buy the dividend shares. And those would be new participants in the market that would come in and they would bid them, you know, we think to a seven to nine percent yield. And similarly there's people who are not that interested in the dividend but want just to see the stock go up. They would buy the growth shares, the capital appreciation shares, and we think that that would trade at about the same PE as you have right now. Adding the math together is what would unlock the value. Greater now, choice would bring in new investors. You took that math to Mary Barra and her team, sat down with them, walked them through it. They did not embrace you, I think it's fair to say. It's fair to say. So what are they missing? Why wouldn't they say, that's a good idea, I want to get my stock price up, let's do that? Yeah, I think the truth of the matter is, is they never really engaged in it. They took a little bit of a not invented here attitude, and they've just fought what we've done from the very, very beginning. But what I would say is, is what we wanted from the beginning was a collaborative, iterative process to solve the balance sheet process at GM, the balance sheet problem. And so what we've done is, in addition to our plan, which is up for the shareholder meeting next week, we've nominated three directors. Mm -hmm. And these three directors bring in enormous capital markets sophistication, which is not present at GM. I think there the CFO is a little bit weak. I think Mary Barra is a wonderful CEO, but finance is the one area where she is not as strong as she is in other areas. And I think the board lacks this level of financial expertise. So what we're bringing in, if, if, if the shareholders vote them on, we're bringing in three people who are extraordinarily good in this area. One is Leo Hendry, who is the CEO with um, John Malone at, at ATC, TCI. for TCI, TCI and all yeah. that for all of those years. Well they did all yeah. kinds of clever things with their balance sheet to minimize the cost of capital. And minimizing cost of capital is very important because GM needs to access capital to fund itself. That's a basic function of a business. And that's, that, that's why, why you bring in that kind of expertise. Then, then we have Bill Thorndike who wrote The Outsiders, which is like the Bible on capital allocation and right. minimizing cost of capital. Right. And then my partner, Vineet Sethi, who is, who is just a genius at capital asset pricing models. So let me kick the tires here a little bit. Yeah. Has this ever been done in any other company successfully? There this are, sort of restructuring? There are many companies that have divided their equity interests, whether it's MLPs versus LPs, whether it's REITs and Propcos and Opcos. There's all kinds of companies that have transformed their businesses to create essentially one stream of, of income and another stream of capital appreciation. And if you're the board or you're the CEO and you have this happen, presumably you could sell one of the shares and keep the other. So you have divided ownership over time. How do you avoid a conflict of interest on the part of the, of the dividend holders, receivers, as opposed to the growth people? As you make a decision, cash yeah. gets a little shorter. Yeah. How do you make a decision that doesn't favor one set of shareholders over another? First of all, you start with the issue that the dividend is very stable. 
GM pays out a little over $2 billion in dividends, and that's what would happen under this proposal. There's $20 billion of cash sitting on the balance sheet. So it's eight years of dividends. So in almost any scenario you can think of, the answer to the dividend is you just pay you just pay the dividend. The second thing is, is that boards of directors' jobs, the reason they're paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, is to balance out competing interests of different stakeholders. Those could be suppliers, they could be workers, they could be managers, they could be executives, they could be customers, they could be dealers, they could be regulators, um, they, they could be just the general public, they could be creditors of different status and shareholders. And the idea that this board thinks that the corporate governance concern is so much that they should reject a plan that would increase the stock price by 30 to 50 percent over a potential conflict basically just says this board is not, is not engaged to do its job. Now, in fairness, it's not just management who has not been, shall we say, enthusiastic about this. The, the market overall has not responded. When you came out with this proposal and you've talked about it, the market did not take GM shares up. So isn't the market sort of voting or at least questioning yeah. what you're proposing? Well, there's, there's no doubt about that. GM is essentially spending $15 million to peddle the bear case on its own stock. What they're basically saying is, is we can't do anything about our stock price. The fact that we have a P.E. that's five, when, even when Ford's is around seven, well, you know, we're an auto company, and we're at the top or towards the top of the cycle, and nothing can be done here until we get to the downturn. And if you don't really like that, what you should do is sell the stock. So they've been running around to shareholders pitching effectively the bear case on their own stock, saying that any innovation you know, is just too risky even to, to contemplate. And as a result, I think, that, um, I think that people are hearing the message from management and they're sensing fear as opposed to optimism. And I think that's having a negative impact on the stock. Okay, we want to welcome once again both Bloomberg TV and radio. We're talking with David Einhorn about his proposal for General Motors. We, we had in a, a prominent uh, auto analyst from Morgan Stanley just the day before yesterday. And in talking to him about the relative value of Tesla on the one hand and General Motors on the other, he said, if you gave me $20 billion to give to either Elon Musk or Mary Barra, I would give it to uh, Elon Musk because there's more really? growth there. That was his response. Yeah. So what's your response to that question? Because you have a short position on Tesla at the same time you're proposing this for General Motors. Yeah, I think it's a question of what the purpose of the $20 billion is. If the purpose of the $20 billion is to earn a profit and a return on the $20 billion, I think you would give it to Mary Barra because GM is interested in its return on capital. They're trying to make about a 20% return on its invested capital, and that's a wonderful return on $20 billion to the extent that they were able to deploy it. I think if the purpose of a business is to advance the future, to have science experiments and really cool, buzzwordy kind of things, then you would give it to Tesla. Because there you have a guy who's done all kinds of fancy innovation and, and is thinking about how society should be 50 years from now, 100 years from now, but he's yet to actually take any money and turn it into a profitable business. And I, and I don't have any optimism that that will change. Well, you, you may be right. We'll find out about Tesla. But there seem to be a lot of investors who are willing to give him more money to do science experiments or whatever he's doing. Yeah. I mean, how much commitment do you have to have as a long, short investor? When you go short on something like Tesla, that can get pretty painful. Yeah, look, um, Tesla is one of, you know, many things we have in what we so-called call our bubble basket mm -hmm. of stocks that we just think are mispriced, and they're mispriced by huge, huge amounts. And, um, you know, they're sized in a way that gives us the ability to, you know, wait a fair amount of time to be proven right or wrong. I think eventually the, the mood of the market will change. Eventually the company will be called into account to 
demonstrate profitability. I don't know when that will happen, and, and the portfolio is positioned properly relative to the risk and the reward there. You also have a very large position in, in General Motors. I mean, you own, I think, 3.6%, something like that, of the shares? Some... Yeah, yeah, that's, it's much larger than our Tesla short. Yeah, much, much exactly, exactly. So if, in fact, you don't get your three members on the board yeah. and your plan doesn't go forward, what do you do with that position in General Motors? Well, our investment in General Motors goes way back before we started. Yes. We basically bought the stock in 2011. We did sell it for a little while around the ignition recall uh, issue, but basically we've been large holders of the stock for six years. Um, you know, our investment thesis is not predicated on this plan being mm. put into place or our directors being nominated. Those are things that came up along the way as part of a multi-year investment we had in GM. Um, you know, I would look to Apple, where we had a similar experience talking about an idea that we advanced a few years ago. Even though they didn't do exactly what we wanted them to do, they did change their capital policy and unlocked a lot of value. And we're still large holders of Apple today, though we have reduced the position some. Well, that does raise the and question. We, there was we would a large. Look at GM very much the same way. Exactly. I'm glad you raised yeah. Apple because there was an extraordinary stock buyback there that got a lot of cash into some shareholders' hands. Sure. Would that, if not satisfy you, at least say, okay, that's good enough with General Motors? Sure. Look, with Apple, they had a problem with capital allocation. They were storing lots and lots of cash. They were returning none of it to shareholders. We had an idea. Maybe some people thought it was too clever. Management thought it was too clever. But instead, what they did was they changed their constraint. They'd previously said, we're not buying back stock. And since then, they've borrowed $100 billion. They've um, bought back a quarter of the stock, at about less than $100 a share. The PE net of cash has expanded from 7 to 13, in part because Apple has a better capital allocation policy today than it did before we came in. Now, GM has a similar inefficient balance sheet. They've said that there are these constraints because they want to re retain all of this money for a potential rainy day. There's several ways to get at it. Our purpose in electing directors is to get at that problem. It could be through the plan and the proposal that we've advanced, or it could be an alternate solution. But either way, when you look at GM and you say your cost of 30-year debt is 5.5% or 5.25%, and your cost of equity is basically 20% or the reciprocal of a 5 PE, that's just too big of a gap, and something needs to be done to close that. So, so, so David, uh, finally, um, you're a long, short uh, investor. You've had extraordinary success through your career. I mean, legendary success. It hasn't been as easy the last uh, little while. You're not alone in that. There are a number of other hedge funds that have really been struggling a bit. In your view, because you are an expert in this, does that tell us something larger about that way of investing, or is this a, a temporary aberration? I, I believe that it's cyclical. There's a period where certain types of stocks do better than other types of stocks, and, you know, we're probably about three years into a period that is, uh, you know, it's been a bit of a headwind for our style of investing. Does it put pressure on you, both in terms of retaining investment um, and also in terms of the, the, the fees paid? I mean, that's what we all, all the talk is about the fees, yeah. right? The two and 20 and well, things like that. Do you feel pressure? I've been, look, I've been very lucky in my career. And um, essentially, when we started Greenlight in 1996 with a million dollars, I never envisioned it would be anything close to what it's turned out to be. When we reached $100 million, I thought we had hit a success that I, you know, that I never would have imagined. And really, since then, I've never really cared about what the size of the fund is. So it'll go up or it'll go down. But mostly, we've, we've been closed. We haven't been open for new investment for, you know, for many, many years. And my goal is not to manage the most money. My job is to do a good job with the money that we do manage. So finally, going back to General Motors in yeah. conclusion, um, 
if you are successful, why will it be? Will it be because Mary Barra changes her mind, or will it be because you get your three directors on the board? Well, I guess I don't know the answer to that. There's lots of different ways to get to success. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.